Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 327 The Art of Enlightenment. We're joined this week by Shingon Vajrayana teacher Hokai Sobel and religious studies scholar Pamela Winfield to discuss Kukai and Dogen on the art of enlightenment. This is part one of a two-part series. Hello, Buddhist geeks. This is Vincent Horn, and I'm joined today over Google Hangouts with two special guests. This is going to be a joint interview and dialogue. And first, I'll introduce our first guest, uh, Hokai Sobel. Hokai, good to have you on the show again. Hello, Buddhist geeks, and hi, Vince. Yeah, welcome. Hokai is a, a longtime friend of the shows. He's a Shingon Vajrayana teacher, and uh, he's based in Croatia, where he's joining us uh, from today over Google. So it's good to, good to have him here. And uh, our other guest is Dr. Pamela Winfield. Um, she's joining us direct from Elon University, where she works as a professor of religious studies. And we're going to be speaking with her today about her book, uh, Icons and Iconoclasm in Japanese Buddhism. Kukai and Dogen on the Art of Enlightenment. So thank you, Pamela, for joining us today. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, I feel honored to be a Buddhist geek. I mean, I know it's official now, but um, I've always been one, but it's nice that it's official. So thank you for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and maybe we, we could just start off with a few questions for Pamela to kind of uh, get into some of the meat of, uh, of your work and, and of your research and your writing. Um, and I wanted to start with this uh, part of the subtitle, you know, the art of enlightenment and see what you had in mind when you use that term, because uh, I got a sense in reading it that it, it has a couple different meanings. Right. So Kukai and Dogen on the art of enlightenment. Um, really, I'm using that phrase in its fullest double sense. That is, this book is not only an exploration of Kukai and Dogen's theories about icons, um, whether images help or hinder you from getting enlightened, you know, their views on imagery, perception, and representation of the enlightenment experience, but it's also an exploration of the art of enlightenment, that is, the technique or the methods for becoming enlightened and how imagery may, the role that imagery plays in awakening. This book contrasts or juxtaposes Kukai, that is the ninth century founder of esoteric Buddhism in Japan, his views, very pro-image views about um, the role of imagery in the Enlightenment experience with Dogen's Soto Zen more, if not iconoclastic, then certainly minimalistic uh, views about the role of, of imagery in, in awakening. And it kind of brings them together in conversation, but also nuances those, those views and, and tries to uh, kind of reconcile these two very strong strains within the Buddhist tradition itself, right? They're both obviously self-identifying as Buddhist. Um, they just represent kind of two poles or two ways of approaching enlightenment, one using images and then deconstructing them, and then one kind of starting off with emptiness and reaffirming form after post-experientially. Um, so that's kind of the, the book in a nutshell. Um, and that phrase, the art of enlightenment, I think tries to get at both, both the image 
or rather the expression and experience feedback loop, right? That both uh, of these masters are inheriting this tradition, either pro-imagistic or a somewhat anti-imagistic tradition within Buddhism itself and doing interesting things with them, each in their own ways. Great, thank you. I had one thing in mind. Uh, you make it clear in the uh, opening chapters of the book that the uh, modern approach to textual study and approach to uh, study of art, imagery, icons have have uh, proceeded, uh, and this also applies to the uh, sphere of Buddhist studies, have proceeded almost independently and uh, that uh, studying them side by side and bringing the findings together uh, would surely uh, enrich our understanding of the subject matter. In this case, Buddhism, its transmission, its history, and its practice in the present time as well. So uh, I was just wondering, uh, how are your, uh, you know, what, what are your conclusions after the work you've done? Mm -hmm. uh, how much is that the case and whether there is a new field opening, namely one that would bring together the exploration of artistic forms and especially in sacred art and the uh, textual study? Wow, great question. Thank you so much for that. Um, yeah. Yes, I think that uh, the field of religious studies is now finally starting to pay attention to visual and material culture, and not just written texts. Uh, don't get me wrong, I do not think we should throw out the baby with the bathwater. I think we need both. And I think um, it's just a question of kind of the history of the academy, how um, in the 19th century, really the Germans, constructed these bodies of knowledge, right? These Wissenschaften of, on the one hand, kind of text-based religious studies and all that philological, amazing expertise that they developed uh, in the 19th century that we have definitely benefited from on the one hand. And then on the other hand, you have the, the Wissenschaft of art history, right? Which is image-based. And um, these two camps kind of never really talked to one another for over a century. There are some you know, exceptions to that, but usually they're the exceptions that prove the rule. Now, I think today, finally, uh, the field of religious studies is starting to take visual and material culture seriously. Uh, and I'm just happy to be part of this, I think, growing trend. There are others, however, it's not just me, goodness no. I'm thinking Fabio Rambelli's Buddhist materiality is a brilliant study. And um, we have, on the other hand, art historians, say like Pat Graham, who is looking um, at Buddhist, modern Buddhist art, uh, modern Buddhist expression. Now her book actually was really uh, marketed as a religious studies book because it was so heavily <laughs> Buddhist in its content. Um, so any, what I'm saying is that these two fields are kind of, I think starting to restore the historical symbiosis. Frankly, with all due respect to the Germans, um, the world is not, broken up into the boxes that the, that the academy says they're broken up into. Religion, we know that 
that uh, monks were artists and artists were monks. There's really no way that you can say that you're only a monk and not doing art, right? It's just um, certainly, in the, especially in these two um, very imagistic uh, traditions of Mikyo on the one hand, that is esoteric Buddhism in Japan on the one hand, and Zen, despite all of its iconoclastic rhetoric, actually is very rich visually, um, yep. right? We know that um, they're doing art as a daily practice even, especially even in the Zen tradition, right? Okay, granted it's in the Rinzai tradition more with the, with the Enso practice, for example, or calligraphy as an, art, uh, as an artistic expression of one's enlightened mind, right? So we know that um, we need to attend to both text and image to, to have a greater appreciation for how Buddhists themselves understood their own tradition and expressed their own, I would say, level or, or uh, their spiritual levels of enlightenment, I would say. Now, that being said, on the one hand, sometimes they are all inheriting their traditions. So yes, on the one hand, sometimes idea precedes the image, right? So they have been reading texts about what, or they've been looking at Buddhas uh, and seeing what Buddhahood should look like, right? Or they've been reading in the Zen uh, camp, um, they've been reading texts and actually learning that they should deconstruct all images of enlightenment, right? When you see the Buddha kill him, when you see the patriarch kill him, right? And so they are inheriting these artistic slash textual traditions um, and then replicating or creating innovation within that tradition. Um, and so that's exciting to look at. My point is that we need to look at both. You can't separate um, text from image and image from text. Kukai himself, with his theory of monji, right? Um, that is kind of pattern letters of reality. He has a very elaborate and um, philosophically rigorous investigation into the nature of uh, sound, right? The phonetic value and the letter, the kind of the written text, as well as the actual reality of the object, of the referent, right? Um, and he, he goes into great detail about these kind of visual texts, word images, right? And his calligraphy as well is, I see this as, a, as an expression of his deep kind of linguistic, imagistic take on reality. Um, Dogen is um, a little less concerned with speech. For him, it's more breath, you might say. So if you're going to take the Mikyo body, speech, mind, uh, right? The three secrets of body, speech, and mind. For Dogen, I would say it's body, breath, mind, <laughs> if anything. But even with Dogen, he, he conflates these um, sights and sounds of Zen. He, he has kind of a synesthetic many synesthetic expressions of, uh, for example, hearing with the eyes and seeing with the ears. So these kind of conflations of visual and maybe conceptual <laughs> or linguistic dimensions or categories um, are, are also conflated in Dogen as well. So um, my point is, I think we need to look at both. If we're going to understand, right, what they themselves are, are trying to get at. Um, I make no pretensions that I know, <laughs> or I have personally experienced um, some of these um, enlightened states that they describe, but I do think as, uh, as kind of 
the so what factor, who cares about text and image in Buddhism? Well, I think it can help us to get a fuller picture of the gestalt, right? Of, of what these Buddhist masters are trying to get their students and their, their disciples to see. But I actually look to you, Hokai, to, to speak to this more from the practitioner's perspective. I, I make no pretensions that I have experienced kaji on the one hand or shinjin datsuraku on the other from either Kukai's or Dogen's perspective. So um, I, I perhaps I, I leave that, uh, this is speculative on my part, I leave the rest to, to you practitioners. Nice. And we'd like to get into, you know, kind of having a more open um, conversation about, you know, the inside and the outside of, of these different things, because it's really fascinating. And, th and that's why we um, invited Hokai in for this conversation, because he's one of the few people I know that is a uh, practice in this, you're calling it the Mikyo school. Um, so I wanted to ask a kind of follow up question too around what you just said, because, um, you know, Hokai, you mentioned there's been an emphasis on the textual study over the art. And it also seems like, um, you know, connected to that, there's been an emphasis on Zen over this Mikyo Buddhism. And I wonder if that's connected. Um, you know, the reason that Zen has gotten such a, you know, I'm mean, obviously there's a lot of reasons, but I, I wonder if you could speak to that a little, Pamela, you know, your perception of that. Ah, okay. So why Zen has received such extraordinary reception in America as opposed to perhaps Mikyo, this esoteric form. Well, um, as you say, there are lots of reasons for this, mm -hmm. um, historical, um, starting in 1893 at the World Parliament of Religions and how Shonsaku, uh, so in Shaku, excuse me, um, kind of presented Buddhism to the West um, as kind of a pure philosophy, um, devoid of any kind of smells and bells, ritualism, um, and that resonated with its Protestant audience, right? Yep. And so it really was kind of a, a perfect example of, of reverse Orientalism, that he kind of gave them what they wanted to hear um, yep. in, in that regard. So, yeah, there are definite reasons why Zen has taken off, at least in America. It's interesting to think about, say, more Catholic countries like France, which actually courted Shingon Mikyo uh, to a greater extent than, than Protestant America did. And I'm not saying that, you know, Mikyo is Catholic and Zen is Protestant. I, I don't want to go that far, but there do seem to be um, perhaps some family resemblances or, or that resonated with, with what people kind of came into the room wanting to hear. Let's just say that. So that's, on the one hand, why Zen really took off in America. This book that I've, that I, this comparative study tries to <laughs> maybe uh, establish a middle path haha, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, between you know the deconstructionist, revisionist Zen scholarship that has been coming out that, for example, completely um, deconstructs and dismantles Suzuki Zen, right? Um, it's kind of a knee-jerk uh, reaction and waking up and realizing, oh, wait, no, Zen really does have rituals. And, oh, wait, no, Zen really does have imagery. Um, and it's really kind of, um, deconstructionist and, and in many ways, I think negative. Uh, and I don't want to. I don't want to do that. I want to appreciate and valorize and acknowledge the Zen tradition. Again, not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Just bring bring Mikyo up on a par, perhaps, with it. 
and, and kind of raise the profile of Mikio and say, hey, look, these are two competing or two alternative versions of Zen, one that uses imagery but deconstructs it, empties it out of substance, and one that privileges, you know, the experience of Shinjin Datsuraku, right, of, of dropping off a body-mind completely, but then reaffirming form after. Um, so as a comparative project, I'm hoping that we can broaden our understanding of Buddhism in America as not just Zen, and it's not just, you know, minimalistic, um, anti-image um, sort of stereotypes that, that I think maybe some people are still operating under that Suzuki Zen or are deconstructing and saying, no, Suzuki had it all wrong. So I want to affirm and nuance. Cool. Hokai, any, uh, any additional thoughts on, on that one? Yeah, I think Pamela covered uh, the, the most important points. Uh, there were other, of course, historical uh, conditions or circumstances, more more precisely, that uh, facilitated the spread of Zen uh, in the, uh, especially later uh, after the Second World War II, uh, during the 60s and 70s, which was, you know, historically speaking, a very short window um, to to have such a strong cultural impact. Uh, not just in America, but also in Europe and uh, elsewhere, wherever the Euro-American culture, you know, geographically reaches and, uh, you know, the Southern America and Australia and other places. Uh, it was, that kind of influence was uh, quite independent from from whatever Buddhism was practiced by the Japanese diaspora anywhere. Yeah. Uh, and as Pamela noted quite correctly, uh, not just Soen Shaku, but many, many later, uh, Netaro Suzuki and many later uh, translators and uh, Zen teachers uh, in, in America and Europe have, have uh, skillfully played on ideas of German idealism and German romanticism to, uh, you know, to produce uh, resonances and uh, agreements and recognitions in the Western audience. And uh, w one of those, one of those strong ideas was uh, a very Protestant kind of uh, doing away with uh, ritualism, doing away with uh, too much emphasis on text, on, on text, or reliance on on text, uh, and also uh, doing away with an uh, overemphasis on institution, which you know nowadays, of course, we know that in Zen. There's also a huge uh, tradition of textual study and uh, a huge accumulation of, of commentaries uh, in every generation. And there's also uh, uh, a lot of uh, ritual involved uh, to mark off different stages in practice on, you know, on daily basis. Uh, and also uh, there's a, a very strong institution and lineage so that uh, but but that rhetoric was very very successful. Uh, on the other hand, uh, Shingon uh, and generally Mikio, which the the, the term Mikio that that uh, Pamela uses doesn't refer just to Shingon. It also refers to the esoteric uh, uh, branch or uh, esoteric uh, aspect of the Tendai school in Japan, and as, as well as some uh, smaller. Uh, uh, movements uh, that are more lay oriented 
and uh, the Mikyo uh, Japanese tradition, because of its very strict, mostly that's the that's the main reason, because of its very strict uh, initiation and transmission protocols, and uh, a uh, reluctance to uh, leave the uh, safe and secure borders of Japanese cultures uh, has basically missed the opportunity to uh, take the advantage of 60s and 70s. Uh, you know, as some other people have said, if there if there hadn't been an invasion on Tibet, who knows? Maybe maybe even Tibetans uh, wouldn't have used that opportunity so uh, efficiently. Mm. That was a very strong. Uh, uh, you know, negative uh, factor. Uh, while you had uh, half a dozen of very, very active uh, Zen masters uh, roaming across the American continent, and at least uh, three or four uh, in Europe uh, who basically took permanent residence, uh, you had no such, you know, uh, personalities except for one or two exceptions. Uh, the Shingon and Tendai teachers only, you know, um, uh, intermittently visited West and uh, didn't exert such a strong influence. And uh, as I said, didn't make good use of that uh, window of opportunity. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.